This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the U.S. is losing the battle to contain the coronavirus as the number of cases here explodes, and experts predict the situation to become even more dire in the next month. It was a week of distress and despair across the country as Americans struggled to reel in the spread of the coronavirus. With the United States now reporting the highest number of cases around the world, our most populated cities are in full crisis mode and preparing for the virus to move to new zones. Emotions and exhaustion levels are high as states and cities cope with severe shortages of medical equipment and personnel. Plus continued frustration with conflicting signals from Washington. Words matter. And uh, those words have created a certain amount of confusion. And when you lack clarity, that can create confusion and confusion can lead to panic. President Trump visited the USNS Comfort on Saturday. The hospital ship is en route to New York to help ease the load on the city's hospitals. Our country is at war with an invisible enemy. New York State accounts for half of all corona cases in the U.S. Governor Andrew Cuomo is preparing for the weeks ahead. You don't win on the defense. You win on offense. You have to get ahead of this, anticipate what's going to happen. Around the world, there are unprecedented efforts by leaders to cope with global shortages of ventilators, medical supplies, and personal protective equipment for medical workers. President Trump signed a $2.2 trillion package of economic relief for individuals and businesses. But with a record-setting three at a quarter million new unemployment claims last week, is it enough to stop the plunging economy? We'll ask Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Plus, we'll hear from former FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards, the head of the World Health Organization's Coronavirus Advisory Board, Dr. David Heyman, and Gianrico Ferrugia, the head of the Mayo Clinic Hospitals. Finally, as we try to keep our spirits up in these grim times, a thank you for all the healthcare workers battling to keep us safe all over the world. All that and more is just ahead on Face the Nation. Welcome to Face the Nation. It is increasingly difficult to find the best way to start this broadcast with the overwhelming amount of news about what's going on in the world. But we're committed to bringing you the most accurate information that we can in these excruciatingly difficult times. If you stick with us until the end of the program, we promise you will look at some true heroes rising to the occasion and inspiring us with the strength of their human spirit. 
As of this morning, the U.S. has the highest number of COVID-19 cases of any country in the world. We've recorded nearly 125,000 cases. That's almost five times what it was just a week ago. And there have been nearly 2,200 deaths. That rate is more than six times what it was a week ago. CBS News national correspondent Mark Strassman has a look at the situation here in the U.S., and he reports from Atlanta. Good morning, Margaret. New York is still the epicenter, but all signs point to a devastating spread across the country. You mentioned those mixed signals. Well, yesterday, President Trump floated a mandatory quarantine of New Jersey, Connecticut, and New York. Governor Cuomo shot down that idea right away. So the CDC instead issued a travel advisory. All residents of those three states should avoid non-essential travel for two weeks. But no question, the siege of New York is about to be felt elsewhere. Watching New York's corona contagion, anyone's entitled to shudder. Overwhelmed hospitals, underprotected, scared emergency workers, shortages of ventilators, test kits, and respirator masks. Many shifts that I've left from after finishing my shift, I've cried. In this city famed for its grit, everyone feels vulnerable. The models say you're 14 to 21 days away from that apex, we call it, when that curve hits the highest point. At Rhode Island's border, National Guard troops stop arriving New Yorkers. They have to register and promise to quarantine for 14 days. Florida's set up checkpoints. This one closes the Florida Keys to outsiders. How is it fair to them to just be airdropping in people from the hot zones, bringing infections with them. Across America, COVID-19 has morphed into a hydra-headed threat. Nine days ago, four states ordered residents to stay home, 75 million residents in all. Today, it's 25 states, 228 million people, roughly two-thirds of Americans, including Californians. By midweek, Los Angeles expects to be the next New York. The Navy pre-positioned this supertanker converted into a floating hospital. Its name, the Mercy. Mayor Eric Garcetti. We will have doctors making excruciating decisions. We'll be trying to figure out what we do with that surge. Other infection hotspots expecting a bad week include Chicago, Detroit. New cases of the virus jumped 1,100 percent in eight days. And New Orleans. Its corona death rate has spiked sevenfold since March 20th. Per capita, its infection rate is about the same as New York's. We are becoming an epicenter. Um, We need all the help we can get from the federal government to help prepare. New Orleans converted its convention center into a field hospital, like New York. City leaders will create 4,000 additional hospital beds at four sites. And another Navy floating hospital arrives in New York tomorrow. Across America this week, communities in crisis will rely on the heroics of frontline responders and something else that's contagious, hope. That's Mark Strassman reporting from Atlanta. Worldwide, we are close to the 700,000 case mark, and we are nearing 32,000 deaths. CBS News senior foreign correspondent Elizabeth Palmer has a look at what's going on outside this country. Here in the U.K., the death rate rose sharply this week as Prime Minister Boris Johnson became the first elected head of state to become infected by the virus, a fact that he announced on Twitter. I am working from home. I'm self-isolating. The palace announced Prince Charles was down with the virus too, but said Britain's 93-year-old queen remained in good health. After the U.S., Italy has the most cases and deaths. Near Bergamo, a parish priest conducted a mass funeral, but strict stay-at-home rules meant there was not a single mourner. In Italy and Spain together, 15,000 people have died from the virus. But the spread does finally appear to be peaking in some areas. The exception to Europe's strict rules is Sweden. There, the focus is to isolate the elderly while schools, restaurants and businesses stay open. A bold, some say crazy experiment. 
Around the rest of the world, people are discovering how to be together apart. Here, a group fitness session in Paris. Nearby, the Eiffel Tower beamed out a salute and a warning. Far away in India, people in an overcrowded village found social distancing space in trees. This pandemic is now threatening the developing world with its vast population, and authorities are reacting. This Indian policeman made himself into a one-man public awareness campaign, while in Kenya, troops tear-gassed crowds ahead of a new curfew. Meanwhile, back at the Vatican this weekend, Pope Francis blessed the world in a deserted St. Peter's Square, joined in spirit by millions watching on TV. Finally, in China, authorities have so far anyway managed to prevent a second wave of infection and continue to gradually lift the restrictions on people moving around. Margaret? Liz Palmer, thank you. We now go to Connecticut and former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Good to have you back with us. Thanks. Uh, Doctor, we heard from Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institutes of Health this morning on another network. He said the U.S. will likely have millions of cases, potentially hundreds of thousands of deaths. Do your projections look like this? Well, I, I certainly hope not. I think we're definitely going to have hundreds of thousands of cases. We might get into the millions. Right now, um, you look at what's happening around the nation, you see epidemic spread in cities like Chicago with 1,800 cases, New Orleans with 1,300, Miami with 1,100, Los Angeles with 1,800. And you see a number of cities that have doubled the number of cases in the last three or four days, Detroit, Philadelphia. So this looks like a national epidemic right now, and I think a lot of those cities are going to be in a situation similar to what New York is in right now. New York is actually so, showing some signs that the spread may be slowing in that city. They made some good decisions early, and maybe in 7 to 10 days they'll actually see themselves peak. But as they come down that epidemic curve or start to peak slowly, other parts of the nation are going to be heating up. And just in closing, I'll say our capacity to sustain and support multiple cities simultaneously as they go into an epidemic is going to be very difficult. The White House is discussing lifting, loosening some of these guidelines and restrictions. I know you have shared your recommendations with them. What should be the trigger for loosening them at a time when it only seems that this is spreading? Well, we've said in the report that we put out today that you should wait until you see sustained reduction in the number of cases for 14 days. So 14 days after you start to see a sustained reduction in the number of daily cases, that's the point at which you can contemplate lifting some of these measures that we have in place right now, some of these very aggressive social distancing measures. But you need to do it very gradually. You need to substitute in other things. There's other conditions that need to be met. You need to have the ability to test the population widely so you can determine who has the infection, who doesn't, and use case-based interventions We isolate individual people. You also want good information about where the virus is spreading. You need to be testing very widely to know where the virus is spreading. So those tools need to be in place. Now, those tools are getting in place. I think by the end of the week, we'll have the capacity to screen maybe as close to to 750,000 people a week. And then going into the week after that, maybe close to a million. The limitation on our ability to screen isn't going to be the screening platforms themselves. We've now deployed a lot of sophisticated platforms, including platforms into doctor's offices. The limitation is going to be the low commodity components of testing, like the swabs or the plastic components used to actually run the tests. The manufacturing supply chain for those components is very limited right now. But but bottom line, do you expect states to be told to loosen restrictions by the White House this week? I don't. I think what the White House is going to announce is that they're going to extend these, these measures or recommend that governors extend these measures for another couple of weeks going forward. Uh, and then reevaluate at that time. The White House has talked about being data-driven. I'm hopeful that they will be. Um, it's too early to lift these measures. We really, it's going to be a difficult April. We're going to get through this. April's going to be a hard month. Coming May, come May, we'll be coming out of this, and we'll be able to contemplate starting to lift some of these measures as we see the epidemic curve come down. Remember, it's, this isn't going to be a simultaneous reduction across the country. New York's going to come down before the rest of the country does. And it may appear that the overall number of cases around the nation are coming down because New York represents such a big part of that. Mm-hmm. But in fact, New York could be coming down and the other parts of the country going up. So we need to look at this on a regional basis. For people at home, for a long time, the administration said, don't waste face masks on yourself. Save them for the sick. You now think people should look at this? Are those do-it-yourself ones worth anything? 
They are. I think, I think people should be contemplating wearing masks, a cotton mask. That we should be putting out guidelines from the CDC on how you can develop a mask on your own. It might create a, a secondary market on Etsy or other sites for selling those kinds of masks. There truly is a shortage of masks for the hospital uh, sec- sector. The, the supply chain is very limited, and the components that go into something as simple as a procedure mask that might be used in a dentist's office are the same components that go into an N95 mask. So all of that supply is going into the hospitals. But people can fashion masks that are partially protective. And the mask, the value of the mask isn't necessarily to protect you from getting sick, although it may offer some protection, is to protect you from other people. So when someone who's infected is wearing a mask, they're much less likely to transmit infection. And the studies demonstrating this come out of evaluations with the flu. There's some studies that show up, up to a 50% reduction in your ability to spread the flu if you're infected, if you're wearing a mask. So that, that's where the value comes in. So if we're looking at measures like stay-at-home orders, and we're looking at lifting those in certain cities as we come down the epidemic curve, Telling people, well, you don't have to stay at home anymore, but if you go out, you have to wear a mask. That could be an interim step that you take as you transition away from these very restrictive measures. You used to run the FDA uh, during the Trump administration. Um, Do you think that agency can move any any faster than it is in terms of approving kits, different kinds of them, or even ways to sanitize masks? Well, I think, I think Jeff Sheridan and the Medical Device Center, the career professionals in that device center, have been moving very quickly, getting tests to the market now that that, that has been opened up. Um, I think that there are opportunities to sterilize masks. I've talked to some doctors that are using gamma radiation to sterilize masks, a certain, certainly secondary procedures for sterilizing masks that can help increase the supply chain. I also think that there's an opportunity to get a therapeutic. I'm very hopeful that by this summer, we could have a therapeutic available authorized by the FDA. You look at the monoclonal antibodies that are in development, um, some of the antivirals that are in advanced stages of clinical trials. It's possible one of these is going to work and we could have a therapeutic sooner than we expect. And that's really going to be a game changer here. That could change the complexion of the risk and allow us to implement some of these, um, pull back some of these measures sooner. Okay. Dr. Gottlieb, always good to talk to you. We will be back in just one minute with a look at the economy with Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Stay with us. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We go now to Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, who joins us from the White House. Good morning to you, Mr. Secretary. Good morning. It's good to be here with you. You will have incredible responsibility in oversight of this $2 trillion rescue package. But what I want to specifically ask you about now is when Americans will receive those $1,200 checks. We expect that within three weeks uh, that people who have direct deposit with information with us will see those direct deposit in their bank accounts. And we will create a web-based system for people where we don't have their direct deposit. They can upload it so that they can get the money immediately as opposed to checks in the mail. But $1,200 takes you a lot farther in Nebraska than it does in California. How do you want people to be spending this money? Well, there's really three components of this law now that protects the American public. And the president was determined that we protect the American workers since it was not their fault that we shut down the economy while we kill this virus. So the first component is small business loans, which about half of the companies in the U.S., people will be able to get small business loans and pay their workers for eight weeks. So we encourage people to do that and get them back to work. Two, there'll be enhanced unemployment insurance. And three, as you said, there'll be these these checks in the mail or direct deposit. It's really bridge liquidity for people as they go through these difficult times. Bridge liquidity for about eight weeks? Well, I, I think the entire package provides economic relief overall for about 10 weeks. Uh, hopefully we'll kill this virus quicker and, and we won't need it. But uh, we we have liquidity to put into the American economy to support American workers and American business. So you don't know if the economy is going to be up and running by Memorial Day, essentially. I mean, are you going to wait that long to come up with a phase four round of stimulus? 
Well, my main focus is now executing. We have everybody within Treasury and the administration working around the clock to get this money out quickly, since this doesn't do people any good if it takes a long time. We also have the task force and the medical professionals making recommendations to the president about when they think the economy will be reopened. And if, for whatever reason, this takes longer than we think, we will go back to Congress and get more support for the American economy. But I hope that's not needed. Uh, you will also have uh, a key role in overseeing what is a tremendous financial rescue package for some of the biggest corporations in this country. Uh, at least $500 billion in size for one of, of these funds. How is this going to work? Should Americans at home uh, understand that you're going to run this the same way that they saw the auto companies bailed out during the financial crisis? Well, let me just be clear. The majority of this money, $450 billion, is money that we use with the Federal Reserve to create broad-based programs. And you know Chair Powell and I speak multiple times a day. The way that works is the Federal Reserve requests us to approve a specific program. I, as Treasury Secretary, have to do that. I've approved every single one they've asked for so far. And in many of these packages, we put up money to support the credit for the Fed. Mm -hmm. So those are broad-based programs. There's also approximately $50 billion that is in specific lending authority where we can lend to out of Treasury to the airlines industry and other national security uh, industries where it's critical. And I'll be working with the president on, on all of those. And uh, let me just emphasize, we have full transparency on anything we do. We will be reporting to the public. Okay. The president said on Friday, though, that the American public could end up owning large chunks of these corporations. What does that mean? Is this going to be run like the auto ballot bailout was? Will the U.S. government essentially be getting equity stakes, warrants? Will American taxpayers be owning companies? Well, let me be clear. We're not bailing out any, any companies or any industries. Any loans that we make, the, the taxpayers will be fully compensated for. How? And uh, as the president said, we'll, we'll look at each one of these situations. Some of them are very good companies that just need liquidity and will get loans. Some of these companies may need more significant help, and we may be taking warrants or equity uh, as well as that. The president wants to make sure that the American taxpayers are compensated. This is not a bailout. Uh, okay, so you still have to determine that, but specifically with a, a company like Boeing in particular. Um, They've said they don't want to uh, essentially allow uh, these equity stakes. This potentially could be a company that is central to U.S. national security. In this bill, you have a carpet for $18 billion in direct Treasury assistance. How are you going to determine who that money goes to? Is that just for Boeing? Well, first of all, we're not going to force money on any, any companies. We're going to put up very clear guidelines of what we're willing to do. Companies need to come in and request. And if they do, we'll be looking at a company-specific situation. We'll be having financial advisors. We have sophisticated people we're working with. And we'll take all those issues into consideration, and I will be discussing all of these with the president. But the president said that some of the most brilliant minds in the financial world are going to be working on this. Who is it that is going to be weighing in? Because the president also said they make, make, may make money off of this. American taxpayers want to know who and how. Well, any of the people who are working with us uh, have already agreed to work at very, very, very reduced rates, uh, making sure that, you know, this is a special situation. So we're not going to be paying big fees to any of these people, and we're going to make sure there aren't conflicts in any of the people we hire. And as I said, there'll be full transparency. So the president is right. He's asked me you to make names? sure. I'm sorry, go ahead. So do you have names for any of those individuals who will be doing this? Um, we, we, the, the Federal Reserve uh, has already announced that they've hired BlackRock. BlackRock is one of the largest asset managers in the world. Uh, BlackRock was involved in the financial crisis last time. Larry Fink has enormous experience. So that's one of them that has been disclosed. And as we hire more people, we will fully disclose it. 
Mr. Secretary, uh, I appreciate uh, all of what you're doing and that you're saying it's going to take time to see if it's going to be successful or not. But do you need to level with the American people here and tell them you simply don't know that all these jobs are going to come back? I mean, the president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank said we could see unemployment hit 30 percent in the second quarter of this year. You saw three million people file for unemployment this week. Well, let, let me clarify. I never said uh, we didn't know if this will be successful or not. I think this this program is going to be enormously successful in stabilizing the U.S. economy while hardworking Americans who lost their jobs or aren't able to work because of the medical situation that they get help. So this money is going to go into the economy very quickly. It is going to help American workers very, very quickly. And I don't know how long it's going to take to kill this virus. I do know we will kill this virus. And when we do, I have okay. great confidence that the U.S. economy will become roaring back. Mr. Secretary, thank you for your time. Thank you. Coming up in our next half hour, a lot more on the COVID-19 crisis. We'll speak with the governor of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards, the CEO of the Mayo Clinic, and the World Health Organization's special advisor, Dr. David Heyman. That's all ahead on Face the Nation. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to take a closer look at one state where the crisis is getting worse. Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards joins us from Baton Rouge. Governor, before we start, I do want to extend our condolences on the loss of your staffer, April Dunn, who we understand died yesterday of coronavirus. Thank you for joining us. She did, and, and thank you very much. And she was a very sweet lady and an important part of our team, so thank you. I want to talk about the fate of your state. You have said that Louisiana could run out of ventilators as soon as April. That's this week. Has the Trump administration given you any assurances that your state will get what it needs? Well, not yet. And we continue to press the case. And, and look, we know that ventilators in sh are in short supply for everyone. Um, you know, all, all states are, are having this issue to one degree or another. And obviously, uh, New Jersey, New York and, and other states have been uh, clamoring for ventilators as well. But over the past few weeks, we've put in orders with the national stockpile, for example, through FEMA. But we've also pursued uh, manufacturers and vendors uh, trying to place orders for about 12,000 ventilators. I think thus far we've received 192. Uh, that is inadequate to the task because we stay on this present growth curve that we're on with respect to coronavirus cases. Uh, we believe that by about April the 4th or so in the New Orleans area, uh, we will exceed our capacity uh, for ventilators, uh, and, and obviously that's not where we want to be. So we're doing everything that we can uh, to try to find uh, ventilators, get them to Louisiana, especially down into that New Orleans area. But it is a big challenge right now. Has the federal government told you you're on your own to secure those ventilators? Well, I, no, I'm not going to say they've told us they're on, that we're on our own. We, we haven't yet uh, been approved for ventilators out of the national stockpile. Uh, I continue to press that case, and, and I hope that we will be cut in for a slice of what they have left uh, there uh, and that we get them in the next few days. In the meantime, we're identifying every breathing uh, machine that we can convert, modify into a ventilator. We're looking at, at trying to source ventilators that would typically be used in the EMT uh, area as opposed to uh, hospital rooms. And then we're looking to see what ventilators we can use to potentially uh, service more than one patient at a time, uh, depending on the acuity levels of the patient and so forth. So we're doing everything that we can. Uh, th this is the, the biggest issue in the near term, however, uh, is ventilator capacity. And it's, mm -hmm. it's the one thing that really keeps me up at night right now. 
You also told CBS uh, that you need N95 masks. Those are the masks for yeah. frontline workers. You told one of my colleagues that your state is paying four and five times the normal cost when you are able yeah. to get them. H have you told the White House that this system of states outbidding each other or trying to bid against the federal government, that it's just not working for you? Well, yeah, we've had plenty of conversations with the White House and, and uh, the vice president leading the coronavirus task force. We've had many phone calls and telephone conferences. Uh, and, and our situation here in Louisiana is not like other states. I'm sorry, not unlike other states. Uh, we did receive into our warehouse about 110,000 masks yesterday. They've all been distributed. So the PPE situation does appear to be getting a little bit better. Uh, we hope that that obviously continues to improve over time, uh, but it's a challenge, and, and everybody is paying more for these uh, items than we would have paid uh, several weeks ago. It's a function of supply and demand. I do think there's some price gouging going on as well, uh, and I'm hoping that that gets investigated, and as we identify practices that we believe to be illegal price gouging, we are turning those uh, over to the U.S. Attorney for the Middle District here in Louisiana. Yeah, that, that's fighting on a lot of fronts at once, sir. Um, is, is there money that you know will yeah. be coming to you through this congressional relief package? Yes. Uh, the $2 trillion package that Congress passed that the President signed into law, we know is going to help with hospitals, with unreimbursed expenses, uh, the expansion of telehealth. We know that families are going to benefit, small businesses, employees. Is it enough? Uh, nutrition for our schools and our food banks. Well, you know, it's, it's a very generous package. It's the largest one in the history of our country. Right, but is uh, it enough for you? There's about $1.8 billion for... Well, we, there's $1.8 billion for the state that's going to help. Uh, and so there's going to be additional legislation coming forward, I, I believe, as mm -hmm. well. But we know that this is a good start, and, and I appreciate everything that they have done in Congress in order to help us. Uh, and we're going to be working with our congressional delegation. If we can identify other needs that we can yeah. get help on, we're going to make sure that we continue to do that. Uh, the first confirmed case of coronavirus in your state came about 13 days after Mardi Gras. Yeah. You didn't cancel it. Um, do you regret not doing so? I know you've said the CDC didn't issue guidelines saying to do so. Is that what you were waiting for, for yeah. the federal well, government to tell you as a state what to do? Margaret, uh, look back to where we were at that time. I think there were 15 cases in the country all of which had been linked to foreign travel, either directly or indirectly, uh, there was not one person uh, at the state or at the federal government, not at the CDC or otherwise, who recommended canceling any event, not just Mardi Gras, but I don't think anywhere across the country. Um, and we'll know what uh, role Mardi Gras played in seeding this virus later. Uh, but right now, that's not our focus. We can't do anything about what happened or didn't happen yesterday. We're focused on building our capacity to deliver health care in the short term. I understand. And slowing I, the spread I understand. Of this I virus. ask you the question on guidance, though, because we know the White House is preparing to issue new guidance in the coming week. So, yeah. as a governor, you know, you wish you knew a few things back then. What do you need to know now? Well, first of all, every time the CDC comes out with updated guidance, we look at it very, very closely. Uh, and we're, we make sure that we're talking to our federal partners, whether it's the Surgeon General, whether it's Dr. Fauci, uh, Dr. Brett Girard, who's over testing. Uh, I've had conversations with all of those individuals to make sure that we're doing everything that we can in Louisiana. You know, we've been about a week into our stay-at-home order. We expect that, that mitigation works and that we'll see uh, that come into play in the next couple of days as, as we continue to report uh, the positive uh, cases. Uh, we need to flatten the curve because, because we know that we're on a trajectory right now where we're not going to be able to deliver the health care that people need when they need it. Uh, not just with respect to ventilators, but a few days after that, yeah. uh, by the 10th or so of April, bed space. And so we need to flatten the curve, surge our medical capacity. Again, these okay. are the same uh, situations, challenges that are, that are facing a number of states right now. We understand, and we wish you good luck, sir. We'll be back in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. 
find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We now go to the president and CEO of the Mayo Clinic, Dr. Gianrico Frugia. He joins us from their campus in Rochester, Minnesota. Good to have you with us, doctor. You may well, have, thank you for having me on the show. You may have just heard the governor of Louisiana tell us that his state is about to run out of ventilators. It's the one thing he says that keeps him up at night. And by April 10th, he doesn't expect to have enough hospital beds to accommodate the sick. Is this going to be the story across this country at hospitals? Yes, this is a critical element of our conversation and discussion as a nation. We have to focus on saving lives. And saving lives means that we have to be very diligent about it because there is no direct end in sight. And therefore, we have to continue to learn and improve as the wave of surges happens across our country. We have to really be diligent about focusing on what we can do to prevent people from getting sick. And if they're sick, how can we prevent them from entering into an ICU? And then once they get into an ICU, how can we make sure that their stay is as brief as possible. Because if, for example, you can go from 10 days on a ventilator to five days on a ventilator, then you can double the number of uh, available ventilators. And Mayo Clinic, together with many other organizations, is is laser-focused on doing this, focusing on on testing and focusing on novel therapies to be able to to really flatten and bend that curve. One of the therapies that's gotten a lot of attention is these uh, antibody serums. Um, tell me what your thoughts are on how effective that can be. So we know that in order to really handle this crisis, we have to take many different approaches. The best antivirals still remains washing your hands, and we have to remind people of that. Then there are the antivirals themselves that attack the virus themselves. Then there are agents that are effective at blocking the molecules that the virus causes our own cells to release. And that can prevent some of the damage we're seeing in the lungs and other organs, including the kidneys. And then there are these convalescent sera or convalescent plasma, where you take plasma from a person who has had the virus and has recovered and has now an antibody response to it, and take that. And in general, you can treat four people from one person. And doing so, you can provoke a artificial, a given response that allows them to recover more quickly. This is based on other diseases, it is now being tried for the coronavirus, for COVID-19, and Mayo Clinic and other institutions are working very hard, collaborating with industry uh, to make sure that we can have adequate supply to test if this is going to make a difference. And I'm hopeful that it will. We've also heard from epidemiologists about the hope of contact tracing, basically figuring out who you've come in contact with in order to determine how at risk you are. How would something like that work in the United States? So every country has a different threshold on on privacy of information, on data. But certainly we as a country have plenty of technology to do better at tracing. Um, We've been collaborating, for instance, with MIT on an app called SafePaths where you can opt in and then within your network you you know if somebody within that network tested positive or even has symptoms. Then we're working with a company called Inference in Boston at really becoming better on predicting hotspots because currently we're predicting hotspots very close to or even a little too late from when they start to occur. And you have the ability to use artificial intelligence to in real time know when a test is positive, but also understand things like, okay, how many tests happened in the last 24, 48 hours? Because that's really important. How many people are being admitted? You can get a much better idea of where the next hotspot is and then move resources. And in the last couple of days, we've tried that. We've done that within the state of Minnesota. And we believe that there are many of these innovations that are happening across the country that will help us improve the way we trace and the way we advise people to be able to, one, avoid getting sick, and once they get sick, to understand what we can do for their immediate contacts. And that is one of the very important ways that we can flatten that curve and at the same time inform the public, because as you know, fear is a big part of this uh, current pandemic. Well, based then on what you have seen so far, do you think that uh, it is underestimated how much of this virus has already infected parts of the American Midwest? There's been a lot of discussion about that. Uh, We have to be driven by the science, not by 
um, conjecture. I mean, we always have to be driven by the science. And to be driven by science, we need to have the right testing. And um, testing serology is going to be very important that way to understand who has an antibody and therefore can be presumed to have had contact with the virus and has mounted a response to it. We at Mayo Clinic have spent a lot of time developing um, a first a PCR test, now a serology test. There are many other institutions that are doing mm -hmm. so. And this is where innovation and collaboration comes together because there's no one single test that is the right test and there are many different tests that can be used serology for what, you, for what you stated, but also trying to bring the price down. For example, the atomic yeah. uh, agency in Austria is trying to use isotopes to develop a very cheap test. Okay. The University All of right. Washington, UC Berkeley are using CRISPR to try different tests as well as in New York. We'll so what we're going you, to be doctor. seeing is a multitude of tests and that okay. multitude of tests is going to be able to give us that, the answer to that question. We wish you good luck. Thank you very much, doctor. Well, we'll thank you very much and we'll I right really back. do want to thank every healthcare worker. Thank you. We do too. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We now go to Dr. David Heyman, a professor of epidemiology who serves as a special advisor to the World Health Organization. He joins us via FaceTime from Severny, France. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning. The United States is the wealthiest country in the world, and we are now the epicenter of this outbreak. Does how this virus affect here, people here in America look any different to you than what it has done in the rest of the world? No, this is a pretty vicious virus, and everywhere it has appeared, it's caused great numbers of people to die, and it's also spread very easily in communities. So what's happening in the U.S. has happened around the world. What has been different is the strategies to contain the virus. From what you're seeing, it sounds like you're suggesting the strategy to contain has not worked. I mean, the White House has said now they're just trying to mitigate it. Well, the strategy works if it started early and if it's continued, even during a time when there are many cases. The objective is to identify people who are infected, either those who are sick or those who are contacts of those people who are sick, and then to isolate those people and stop transmission, while at the same time having other measures such as physical distancing and means to keep people from getting too close together. It sounds like what you're describing is what South Korea has done. Well, that's right. Singapore, South Korea and Hong Kong have all begun a strategy very early to contain the outbreak. And they've tried to contain that outbreak with minimal disruption in their daily lives. There's a very important issue in all of these countries, and that is that people clearly understand how to protect themselves and how to protect others. They've been through the SARS outbreak. They know that they can stop this outbreak, and they're working very hard to do that. So that's one of the differences. They've had SARS outbreaks before. They have learned how to not only stop transmission, but also to stock up their hospitals so they're able to take people when they do become sick. Would it be too early to lift some of the restrictions here in the United States? As a medical professional, what is your opinion? I'm not asking about the politics. Well, at the World Health Organization, we've been discussing with a group of people how best this outbreak can be stopped and at the same time how the lockdown procedures can be lifted. And the general consensus is that it depends on the risk assessment in the country. China has already begun to unlock its heavy industrial sector and also its small business sector, and they're watching very closely to make sure that transmission doesn't increase as a result. That's what other countries need to do as well. They need to understand where the majority of transmission is occurring, and then they need to keep those sectors locked down most while unlocking the sectors where transmission is less important and having measures in place to stop transmission should it begin to increase again. There was a team of British doctors who wrote this week that one of the signs of exposure to the virus is loss of taste and smell. Is that an indicator? Should Americans be looking out for that? 
It certainly has been an indicator in the U.K. and in many other countries, and I'm sure that in the U.S. it will be the same manifestations. So, yes, loss of taste has been a characteristic in some populations, but the most reliable means of determining whether or not one is infected is a fever and a persistent dry cough. Do you have any reason to believe that once someone is infected, that they then become immune? Or do you think this virus will hit in waves again and again? You know, other coronaviruses don't develop long-term immunity. People can get infected with those coronaviruses that cause common colds on a regular basis. So it's very important that the immune response to this organism be studied. It's too early to say for sure. Hopefully, there will be a solid immunity that develops so that vaccines can be developed that will be effective and other means of prevention will be possible. Well, there's some talk about people developing immunity and therefore allowing them to go back into society. You're saying it's not clear yet if we can say that's a safe method. Um, you, you talked about the fact that this was transferred from the animal kingdom into humans and then now spread human to human. Will animals continue spreading this disease or was this a one-time transmission? As far as it is understood, this was a one-time episode where an animal in nature or even a bat in nature, because this virus is very close to viruses in bats, infected a human. And that human then infected others. And there was some mass event in uh, the city of Wuhan where many, many different people were infected at the same time and sent off chains of transmission among their contacts that traveled internationally and also within China. China shut its borders to foreigners yesterday. Would you advise other countries to do the same? It has to be a risk-based assessment to really understand whether borders need to be closed. China has closed its borders because it now has more infections coming from outside China than within China itself, at least at present. And so they've decided that they want to stop this by actually closing their borders and putting people who should come in if they're infected in quarantine. Should the Chinese Communist Party has shared more information about this virus and done it sooner? The, the government in China has shared information very freely with the World Health Organization and also with others. There are many published articles from Chinese investigators that have been put out on many different medical journals in front of the paywall so that everybody can understand what's going on. So there's been, to date, quite a free sharing of information among countries and from countries to others. Dr. Heyman, thank you for joining us. Thank you. We'll be right back with some thoughts on our heroic first responders. That's it for us today. We'll see you next week. But we leave you with a look at the people around the world who aren't able to weather the crisis at home with their loved ones. They're the healthcare workers and first responders who continue to report for duty to protect us. These are the troops on the front lines of this new world war. The nurses, emergency responders, doctors, scientists, and hospital staff defending us all against an advancing and invisible enemy. In New York, Governor Cuomo's call for reinforcements was met by a surge of volunteers. 40,000 retired healthcare professionals and newly graduated students stepped up to serve in the besieged and makeshift hospitals at the new epicenter of this global outbreak. Another 6,000 mental health professionals offered help to those in distress. In Seattle, New York, and soon-to-be hotspots across this country, we've seen these acts of community and courage. Hospitals cannot provide the body armor needed, the masks, goggles, and protective gear to help the healers avoid becoming patients themselves. In scenes reminiscent of the World War II home front, many quarantined Americans put their sewing machines to good use crafting makeshift versions of face masks. Gestures of gratitude from a public told that the most useful thing they can do is to simply stay home. In Italy and Spain, where the pandemic arrived earlier, the virus has claimed a disproportionate share of healthcare workers' lives. As one New York surgeon wrote to his colleagues this week, the enemy is inside the wire, except that there is no place to hide. They survive because we don't give up.
In recognition of that sacrifice, millions of people in cities across the world took to their balconies and doorsteps to applaud from afar their nation's caregivers. The very first warning of this mysterious virus came from a physician, Li Wenliang. His urgent message was deemed illegal activity by Chinese authorities. That selfless, defiant act, a reminder that medicine is not a job, it is a calling. In this country, we're accustomed to thinking of heroes dressed in military uniforms, not medical scrubs. But a virus cannot be stopped by borders or bullets. And that has reminded us all that we are united by our vulnerability to this microscopic but deadly enemy. It will take a particular type of valor to defeat it, one rooted in protecting the very first of those inalienable rights that Thomas Jefferson once wrote up, life itself. And on behalf of a grateful nation, we thank them all for their service. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards, Mayo Clinic CEO Gianrico Ferrugia, and World Health Organization Special Advisor David Heyman. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.